please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Going to first be reading verses 1 through 17, then we're going to turn a couple pages over to chapter 23, chapter 23 and reading verses 10 through 12. Yeah. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless, uh, him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And now turn to chapter 23, verse 10. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You, ha you shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning. It's, uh, it's great to look out on such a beautiful congregation, and uh, we were a little bit down in number last week as a number of you were sick, but it looks like you're back. Um, so welcome back to all those who were down and out. Um, thankful that the Lord was gracious. Uh, it's great to have visitors with us today. Welcome. It's great also to have some of our favorite young people back visiting from uh, Cedarville, Ohio area. Uh, Avery, Nathan, Emma. Uh, it's a good time of year. And, uh, you know, we're, we're finally here at this time of year. Uh, I went to... I had to go to Big Lots this week to get something, and it shocked me to discover that they were all decked out for Christmas. And it felt weird when the cashier w wished me happy holidays. And I reported all of this to my wife when I got home. I said, babe, can you, can you believe that the stores have Christmas stuff out already? And her reaction was about the same as yours is right now, which is, uh, yeah, it's been out for about a month. 
well, I, I don't get out much, so uh, I can be forgiven. So let me be hardly the first to uh, wish you happy holidays. I hope that you have a wonderful Thanksgiving this week with your family and your friends. And I hope you can enjoy some rest and some refreshment as you reflect on your many blessings that the Lord really has just showered upon you, I expect, if you're anything like me. Um, trust that you'll be able to express to others and just to your own soul just how good God has been to you. Now, I know that some conservatives find the term holiday to be a, put, uh, a bit off-putting. You know, they're, they're concerned that it's a little bit too neutered of a term. It's too inclusive. They would rather that we say, you know, Merry Christmas and keep the emphasis on Christ. And I get all of that. I uh, am definitely on board with that. But I think the word holiday has its place, too. For starters, you know, if you say happy holidays, then you can, it's, it's a plural, so you can include two different holidays in that greeting. When people say it nowadays, they mean this time of year, they mean, hope you have a great Thanksgiving, and if I don't see you, I hope you have a great Christmas and New Year's as well. Happy holidays. It covers all of them. So it's useful in that respect, but more importantly, it's a mistake to think that the term holiday is a secular sort of a term. Uh, it's a mistake because the word actually is derived from two words, holy and day. A holiday is a holy day. So let me be the, perhaps the first to wish you happy holy days. Now, in our study of Exodus, we've already seen the establishment of some holy days. Okay, that was back in chapter 12 and chapter 13, where the Lord God established the Passover, um, an annual feast. And this would lead into more holy days, uh, which would be the Feast of Unleavened Bread. These were special times and days every year that were to be set aside for remembrance of very important events. And now, in the context of the Ten Commandments, we come to the fourth, in which the Lord God institutes a Sabbath and insists that his people, the Israelites, keep it as a holy day unto him. Now, of all of the Ten Commandments, the fourth is, I think, by far the most discussed and the most debated. If you've ever wondered how these uh, 10 words relate to you and whether you're bound um, these days and as a new covenant Christian to the Mosaic law, you're wondering how this uh, specific law that was given to a particular people at a particular point in time in redemptive history, you, you wonder how does that relate to you? How do I apply that now in my life? Um, I assure you that you're not alone. Uh, we all wonder that. We all wonder about the ongoing applicability of the Ten Commandments. That is the question of the hour. And the fourth commandment, it seems, is, is a test case for that debate. So whenever that debate rages, it always comes back to, what do you do with the fourth commandment? And I don't expect that today, in the amount of time that we have, that we're going to be able to put that discussion to rest, in a manner of speaking. Uh, I do 
you know, we're probably not going to solve this millennia-old debate uh, right here and right now. But I do expect to give you some things that you can chew on and perhaps uh, discuss with your small group a little bit later on. You don't have small groups? Well, the Hornell group has a is meeting today, so. Uh, we're just a little bit more spiritual than the rest of you, I guess. So you're welcome to come join us at the Howard's house to discuss some of this stuff. Otherwise, uh, I hope you can just chew on uh, the stuff that I'm going to bring forth from the text and I hope it'll be helpful. So let's just start ease ourselves into it by looking at some of the basics. Let's look first at the particulars of the commandment. I want to notice some particulars of this commandment, and uh, we'll see this in verses 8 to 10. Now let's just start off by noticing a couple of things right off the bat. First, just notice something about the length. You know, compared to the other commandments, the the fourth is quite a bit longer and more detailed. In detail, it's similar to the 10th commandment um, about coveting, uh, but in length, it resembles the second commandment, and both have about 90-something um, English words. They're about the same size, and they're strikingly different in length to the rest of the commandments. So we'll try to figure out the significance of the extra length and detail in a minute, but I think for now it's just good to recognize it. And then secondly, we observe that this is one of the rare commands that is phrased positively. The fifth, this one and the fifth commandment, which we will look at next week, Lord willing, those, those two are phrased positively. Most commands come to us as thou shalt not. Right? They are they're negative in terms of their phrasing and their structure. And even though this fourth commandment has that, that negative command built into it, it presents to us very positively. I think that's worth noticing. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do your work. That, those are positive. There's not a thou shalt not in there yet. And so just bask, I guess, in the positivity of the, how this command is presenting to us. And that raises, I think, an interesting question right off the bat, which is, why is it that we emphasize the thou shalt not? Uh, Pastor Jason alluded to this in, in his prayer. We, we are a, a pretty negative uh, people, aren't we? Even when we uh, are presented with something positively constructed, we're immediately thinking of, what about the thou shalt not? So why do we, why do we rush to the thou shalt not aspect of this commandment and can almost completely ignore the, the positive aspects of it? We focus in, I think, in this command on, on what is prohibited on this one day, and we blow right on past what is positively commanded. And what is positively commanded is that his people work and that they work diligently. I'm, I don't know if we plan this, um, but Matthias actually set us up perfectly. So, sometimes, we, uh, sometimes we do plan that, but I don't know if we did this time. 
and uh, I'm thankful to the Lord for the setup here. It, it's good that we would focus on work and the God-given uh, responsibility and duty and privilege of work. When the Lord God made mankind in his image, he did so for the purpose of our ruling and exercising dominion. When God made Adam, he placed him in the middle of the garden in order to work it and to keep it. And Adam, you'll recall, immediately set out to do the work that God gave to him, and he started cultivating and um, classifying and naming all of the animals. In the same way, there would be all kinds of work for the Israelites to do as they are making their way to the promised land. There would be water to draw, animals to feed, tents to set up and take down, goods and services to trade, uh, children to raise. And then once they took possession of the promised land, the land of Canaan, there was going to be houses to build, culture to develop, uh, businesses to start and run. And we know that from the design and the purpose of our creator and from the universal testimony of scripture that work is good. Work is a, a good endeavor, and it's holy. And yes, on this side of the fall, it's, it's often difficult, it's cursed, it's uh, sweat-inducing. There's thorns and there's thistles and everything related to that that impedes the progress, but still work maintains its, its dignity. The wise teacher in Ecclesiastes concluded that there's nothing better for a person then he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil this is from the hand of God God's people are to work and to work hard and to work much let's just put it that way I don't know if that's the proper way to put it but in fact look at the command again God's command is that his people would work six out of seven days 85% of the week. And this is something that hit me this week. I don't think I've ever heard this or thought about it before, but in all of the books that I've, I've read on the topic of the Sabbath, I can't remember even one that takes our typical five-day work week and takes that to task as they compare it against the, the commandment to work six days. Why aren't we talking about that? I don't know. That, that hit me. I, I wonder if you've thought of that. Maybe you have, but that, that's interesting. Okay, we're just observing here, and we're noticing what is commanded and what is prohibited. What is positively commanded is to work six days, and then to remember the Sabbath. And Sabbath means uh, the seventh day of the week. Saturday, by, by our, our counting here, the seventh day of the week, it's to be kept holy. And holy can mean a lot of things in scripture, but uh, fundamentally it means to be set apart, to be distinct, to have a sort of special status. And that's what I think it means here. Um, it might be a helpful analogy to, to think again about what we talked about last Sunday. 
we saw that God's name is to be hallowed. God's name is to be uh, made holy and kept holy. That means that it's to be set apart from everything that's mundane. It's to be set uh, uh, apart from, from what is common or earthy or profane. Well, in that same kind of a way, this one day is to be kept holy, set apart from the, the mundane, the everyday routine, the, the nine to five. The people would remember the Sabbath by not working on that day at all. And we see some examples of what not working looks like as Israel's history unfolds. Um, prohibited activities include things like selling goods, even carrying goods out of your house, or even, you know, carrying goods on your animal, letting the animal bear your burdens, kindling a fire. All of these things are included in the list of things that are prohibited. And if you want a, if, if you want a more uh, specific sort of instruction, just pay attention to the fact that the Lord commands here that you are not to do any work at all. That, that's, how you that's how the people of God would remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Okay? And then by Jesus' time, if you kind of trace out how this law develops, by Jesus' time, the Pharisees had had made Sabbath keeping even stricter than that, if you can believe it. And they had an issue with Jesus' disciples, you know, stripping heads of wheat off of, you know, when they're working through the, the walking through the wheat field in order to just get a little bite to eat. That little pinching motion apparently was too much work to be done on the Sabbath. And that is one tendency that humans have in the face of Sabbath strictures, okay? Legalism. Legalism. But the, the Lord God is aware of another tendency that people might have, and that is that if, if we're not allowed to do any work on the Sabbath, then perhaps we can get the kids to do it, or the servants, or, you know, I might not be able to carry a package from point A to point B, but what about if my livestock does it? What if I put it on a, a donkey? Or what about a person who's not an Israelite? You know, can I outsource my work on the Sabbath to a sojourner? The, this, is the, uh, this is the tendency that human beings have to try to find some sort of workarounds. And I mean no offense by this. I'm just bringing this up to give you a little bit of an analogy. But that particular tendency reminds me a little bit of the Amish. Okay, now, I love the Amish, and I'm glad that they are our neighbors in all of our towns. They're good neighbors, love it, but I always kind of get a, a kick out of the, the workarounds that they have to all of their restrictions. They're not allowed to drive a car to Walmart, but apparently it's totally fine if they ride in the car of some English guy that they've paid to take them. I don't know, the, the thinking is, you know, let him be under the judgment of God. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. 
So they're, they're kind of off on a technicality. But the, but the Lord seems able to anticipate all of the possible workarounds that we in our sin would, would try to make. And so he spells this out in verse 10. Look there with me. He's spelling out who is included in among the people who are to do no work at all on the Sabbath. It's you, but it's also your son, your daughter, your female servant, your, so your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. Um, the Lord God has to spell this out, of course, because we are wicked. And this leads us to a third tendency that mankind has when it comes to the Sabbath, and that is to treat it as restrictive and burdensome. Again, I'm, I'm very thankful to, to Jason for leading us in prayer along these lines. Because, in fact, the, the cam commandment has the opposite intent of being burdensome and restrictive. It's for the relief of your burdens. I remember having this kind of backwards thinking when I was younger. Not real young, mind you. It, was, it, was, it lasted into my early teen years where my parents would make me and my siblings take naps especially on a Sunday afternoon. I, and I remember always thinking, oh, man, seriously? And I would comply, but, but only a very reluctantly and after voicing a lot of protest. But looking back on that, I feel so ridiculous. I feel like such an idiot because my parents were making me take a nap, people. Today, if one of you made me take a nap, we would be best friends for life. <laughs> you know, I, I would write odes to you. I would, re I would rename one of my kids after you. <laughs> friends, understand this, and maybe understand it for the first time, what a gracious commandment this fourth one is. Actually, that all of them are. Do you confess that you look at a list of commandments like that and you're like, oh, man. But actually, all of these commands are so gracious. They're for, they're for our good. And notice how wonderful this fourth one is. In love, the Lord God demands his people to refrain from work on the last day of the week. He makes them to just lie down in green pastures. He intends the, the restoration of their soul. How good he is. It would be kind of like if someone invited you over for lunch today, um, and when you got there, they led you immediately to the easy chair, and then they showed you how to work the mechanism so you could uh, put your feet up. And they strictly say to you, but with a twinkle in their eye, now you're not to lift a finger. Just rest. And minutes later, you can hear them kind of working away in the kitchen. You can hear the plates um, tinking against each other. And that makes you feel terrible. And so you pop up and you go over there to the kitchen and, and you say, what can I do to help? And the answer is, of course, nothing. And isn't that a, a gracious and a beautiful thing for your host to do for you? 
And how much more so, if it just keep going on this thought experiment, how much more so if you're a former slave? If all you did 24-7, 365, 400, was nonstop burdensome labor, and then the, the one who has rescued you is now strictly saying, with a twinkle in his eye, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. No work. Rest, my child. Well, it sounds nice in principle, but in practice we find it hard and awkward. And that says a lot more about our human tendencies than it says about our gracious God. We resist rest. And, and that, I think, is a real clear testimony about our pride, our self-sufficiency, our love of the hectic and the frantic. We're just frenetic people, and we're just flitting about all over the place. And we deceive ourselves into thinking that by our frenzied activity that we're actually accomplishing something of significance. But we're actually just crushing ourselves. And we're crushing other people. I don't know if you've noticed this. It would be one thing if our reluctance to rest only affected us, but we demand others keep working uh, in order to keep up with us. And along those lines, I want you to just look again at verse 10 and notice the social dimensions of the Sabbath. This law is not just a grace for individuals. It is for the rest and for the refreshment of those who have hardly any status whatsoever. Children, slaves, sojourners. And then this same point, I think, is emphasized again in chapter 23, in, in those verses that Titus read there, where it's spelled out that essentially that the Sabbath was made for man. It's made for the sake of the poor and even for the sake of the animals. Verse 12 of that chapter says, Six days shall you do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Why? That your ox and your donkey may have rest. And the son of your servant woman and the alien. This is who the Lord's concerned about, that they have rest. Well, those are just some of the particulars of the command. Let's uh, look in the second place as at the pattern for the commandment. The pattern for the commandment. This uh, has us focusing in on verse 11. Uh, because here we're given the grounds for this commandment. This, by the way, is not the only grounds that God gives for his Sabbath command. We find another one when this command is repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15. When, when Moses there repeats these ten words, he highlights there another reason for the fourth commandment. And uh, he repeats the first part of that very much in the same way as what we find here in uh, chapter 20. It, it corresponds very closely with our 8 to 10. But then Moses says this for the grounds there, and that corresponds to verse 11 of our passage. He says there, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. 
So in Deuteronomy, Moses is grounding this command in redemption, which is totally valid. Okay, that's exactly right uh, to do that. But back here in Exodus 20, it's not grounded in redemption. It's grounded, and here's the function of that little word for that begins verse 11. That's grounds. It's grounded in creation. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, God blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, it's important to see what God is saying here and what he's not saying here. What is being said is that God himself is our pattern in this matter of Sabbath keeping. God himself showed us what it was like to work for six days and then to rest on the seventh. He shows us what Sabbath rest is meant to look like. And of course, there are going to be some major differences because technically speaking, the Lord God does not actually need rest and refreshment. You know, those six days didn't wipe him out. They didn't, he's not left depleted and needed recharging. From the beginning, all of this is spoken for our sakes. This is anthropomorphic language that's pointing us to the fact that this is for us. This This is made for us. But we know that it was on that seventh day that God stepped back from the work that he had made and said, behold, it is very good. And so we see that seventh day rest is not just exiting a state of work, but it is entering into something. It is entering into a state of satisfaction and enjoyment of a completed work. The Sabbath command is a a gracious invitation for God's people to enter into his rest. I want you to remember that as we continue to see what's going on here. And because of this pattern, from Genesis 2, verses 1 to 3, because of this pattern, the Sabbath can be said to be sanctified. Um, Sanctified is the same word for holy there, which means set apart. The Israelites can now keep this day holy. They can set apart this day because God himself has blessed this day and set it apart. That's that's the logic. And I, I think that's what verse 11 is saying, that God's creation week provides the pattern for Israel to follow in this Sabbath commandment. But it's also important that we notice what is not being said. It's important because this is a move that many people make at this point. And when I say many, I mean most. And I'm not just talking about people. I'm talking about good theologians, good reformed guys, the kind of people that we know and trust and listen to and love. And so just like uh, a couple of weeks ago in the case of the second commandment, I'm going to take exception to some received wisdom if I could put it that way and I'm just giving you fair warning of that um, so that you know that in the grand scheme of things I'm I'm the oddball here okay but I I want to just uh, show you where I'm coming from here anyway with all I'll, I'll step aside from all of that prefacing 
And here's the move. Here's the move that people make. They say Exodus 20.11 brings us back to Genesis 2, 1 to 3, right? And what are we meant to see? I'm saying that we're meant to see just the pattern that God established here, that the people of Israel are now to follow, but the vast majority of uh, theologians in our tradition see much more than just a pattern. They believe that this was a prescription. They believe that this demonstrates that the Sabbath is what they call a creation ordinance. And by creation ordinance, they mean a rule that was given at the very beginning that, that is in place for all people at all times. Everyone, if, if you're in the creation, if you're a human being, you are meant to keep this creation ordinance. It is enduring and you are bound by it. That, that's the move. Now I'm getting my, ahead of myself a little bit because we're going to take up the question. This, this question comes in the next minute or two. What is the, the perpetuity of this commandment? Okay, how do, Does it apply to us today? But I want to already be showing you just where people get the idea that we're still under the Sabbath command today. They see it here with this strong connection to creation. And according to this view, you cannot, the, the Sabbath command is not to be repealed, just like you can't repeal marriage, which is another creation ordinance. It's, it's for all people to the end of time. But in, in my humble opinion, this is just reading way too much into the text. Seventh day rest is clearly a pattern that emerges from God's activity in creation week. But the question is, is it a prescription? Is it a command that God gave to our fir the first parents? And that's the question. And so if you go back into the first few chapters of Genesis, I'm suggesting to you that you will search high and low for a command for humanity to keep the Sabbath. And if you search further in Genesis, you will not find any of the patriarchs or anyone at all commanded to keep the Sabbath by not working. In fact, the first time that we're even introduced to the word Sabbath, was just a couple of months ago for Israel and I think for us too when the Lord first provided manna in the wilderness for the people to eat and with that gracious provision he also gave the strict precept that they're not to gather it on the seventh day for that was going to be a Sabbath to the Lord and it seems to me that that the Lord was there preparing for them for this fourth commandment which he was going to shortly give, which he's now giving. And the people would need that kind of preparation. They would need some kind of detailed explanation as they got there and as they're getting here. And they need all of this command, explicit command and detail because this commandment is obviously a brand new thing to them, which it would be, it would not be, this would not be a brand new thing if their forebears had observed the Sabbath since the time of creation. 
And I think that that explains why so much space is dedicated to this command here um, in, in our text compared to most others. Well, we've already gotten into it, so let's just move fully and officially into our third and final point, which is the prospects for the commandment. The prospects for the commandment. In the last point, um, the Sabbath command had us looking back to the pattern that God established in the creation week. But under this point, we want to look forward into the future. So if you're, if you're an unemployed person, if you're single, folks will ask you in, in both cases, do you have any prospects for a job or for a boyfriend or for a girlfriend? And they're asking you questions about the, the future, which are quite frustrating, right? Because you, don't, you can't predict the future. But we, we certainly have that similar kind of question when it comes to the fourth commandment. What are the prospects for it? What, what will become of this commandment as we move forward in the story? So and let's get right to the point. The question on every one of our minds is, does this commandment still apply to us as New Covenant Christians? And my answer to that is going to be yes, but not in the way that you think. So that's, that's, where I'm, that's how I'm going to answer. Let me see if I can lead you there. I want to back up just a bit and bring you there. We can first ask, what becomes of the Sabbath command in the Old Testament itself? And if we had the time to trace this out through the next few books of the Bible, we would see a bunch of case, uh, case laws, case studies, teasing out precisely what constitutes a breach of this Sabbath commandment. And we would also discover the, the penalty for breaking this commandment, which is nothing short of the death penalty. And it just, that's just, if, if you ever needed an, an indication of how important and how seriously the Lord takes this particular commandment, recognize that, that if you break the commandment, it is a capital crime. We would also learn that the Sabbath law is a sign of the covenant that God is now making between Israel and himself. This was going to be the thing that marked out the people most publicly as the people of God. Their, their keeping of the, um, the covenant, their remembering the Sabbath. And so, with that strong connection, you can understand how being disobedient about this commandment is basically akin to not being faithful to the covenant that God has made with you. This is why it's so, so important. This is why the stakes are so high. And if we followed out the, the Old Testament, we would find, sadly, that Israel consistently disobeyed this particular commandment. They broke faith with their covenant Lord on this man matter. They had high-handed disobedience to God in the matter of the fourth commandment. And that was one of the primary reasons why Israel was taken into exile as a judgment of God. So if we move forward, if we think, what are the prospects of this command? In, in the Old Testament itself, I, I'm here to tell you it's just bad news all over the place. 
the good news is that if you keep moving forward in scripture, you come to the, the New Testament. You come to the New Covenant. You come to the incarnation of the eternal Son of God. When we turn into the book of Matthew, we are introduced to the Lord Jesus Christ, who was born under the law, who perfectly kept the law, and yet did so in such a way as made very clear that he was not just keeping it, but he was fulfilling it. Jesus' obedience and the way that he spoke about the law made it very clear that, that here's one who is transcending the law so that he could even make the bold statement that he is Lord of the Sabbath. Who would dare make such a statement other than the Son of the Most High God? Jesus is declaring when he calls himself Lord of the Sabbath, he's saying that the Sabbath was from him and through him and for him and to him. Those are huge statements. And there are lots of ways to describe our Savior, I, I expect you'll agree. But one of them is to say that Jesus is a worker. He's a, he's a hard-working man. And Jesus once said, my father is always at work, even to this day, and I too am working. Whenever we find Jesus, we, we find him constant at the task of preaching about his kingdom and casting out demons and healing the sick to demonstrate that his kingdom was the real deal. And it's very interesting when you notice that Jesus did many of his healing miracles on the Sabbath. That's interesting to me. And I, I believe that he did that deliberately. Th this was something that the Pharisees were always on his case about because they would say, actually, you know, healing is work and you can't be doing work on the Sabbath. Can you imagine being so hard-hearted that you get hung up about the work part and totally miss the healing part? Hello? He, he just healed a guy who's been blind since birth. And you're talking about work. That's not just the Pharisee's heart. We have to be warned in the book of Hebrews against that kind of a heart growing up in us. We have to be urged not to, to um, nurture this hard-heartedness, this unbelieving heart. What Jesus was actually doing, he's, he's actually doing what the Sabbath was designed for. Jesus, when he's healing and when he's casting out demons, he is giving rest and refreshment and restoration to a humanity that is just beaten to a pulp by the curse and by the daily grind. Jesus is offering his, his rest. And more significantly, when Jesus suffered on the cross as a substitute for sinners, when, when he endured the wrath of God that, that was coming against our sin, that was imputed to him, and when we receive his righteousness, you know, when his perfect record of law-keeping is imputed to us by faith, then, friends, we can rest 
in his finished work. This is exactly, I think, what the author to the Hebrews is driving at. He's driving at this redemptive theme when we read in chapter 4 of that um, sermon that whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And the point seems to be that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is the end of our busy, frenzied work to try to somehow work our way into salvation. We enter into a Sabbath rest when we receive by faith the gracious invitation that comes from the Lord of the Sabbath. When he says to us, come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You ask, am I still bound to keep the Sabbath? And I can think of no better answer to that question than the one given by my friend Blake White, who's a pastor in Texas, as the title to a little book that he wrote on this topic. And here's the title. Obey the Sabbath, rest in Christ. Here's how you, yeah, you're to obey the Sabbath, but here's how you do it. You rest in the finished work of Christ. Perhaps there are some of you here today that need to keep the Sabbath in that respect for the first time. Have you, have you finally come to an end of yourself? Are you, are you finished with the illusion that you can somehow work your way into acceptance with God? If by God's grace and by his spirit that you're at that point, then I invite you to enter into his rest. Heed the invitation that comes from the, the Bible, comes from Hebrews, it comes from us to enter that rest fully. Enter into the pure satisfaction and delight of his finished work on your behalf. Discover it for the first time today. Enjoy it and declare that, behold, it is very good. I'd love to end there, but I feel duty-bound just to address, however briefly, something that many of you will be wondering about. You wonder, hasn't the Old Testament Sabbath, so rest on the seventh day, been transferred in the New Testament to the Lord's Day, where we worship on the first day? Isn't the Lord's Day the Christian Sabbath? And my answer is, I'll give it to you curtly for the sake of time, of course not. Where would you ever get such an idea? Now, I understand that that idea is out there, and more, more than just being out there, it's, it's on the level of just accepted knowledge. We, we, we just accept that uncritically. But I think it's worth asking, where would we ever get that idea? And we certainly would not get it from Scripture. Yes, the Bible speaks of Christians meeting on the first day of the week and calling it the Lord's Day. And that's what we do. And it's, very, it's a very appropriate time and title. 
after um, after all, it's a it's kind of an homage to the fact that our Savior, who we are worshiping, that was the day that He rose again from the grave. What a perfect day that we would gather and worship His name on the Lord's day. No, there's no more appropriate day, all things being equal, than to worship on the Lord's day. But what does that have to do with the Sabbath? Did these early Christians that you read of in the book of Acts, for example, did they they believe that they were keeping the Sabbath by meeting on the first day of the week? There's, There's no evidence that they did. In fact, early on, Gentile believers were meeting with Jewish believers in the synagogue for Christian worship, but on the seventh day, on a Saturday. Okay, so that, that happened. And, and it, um, it wasn't until hundreds of years later in church history do we find Christians connecting the Lord's Day with the Sabbath. That, that's just something that would have been foreign to um, the early church. And if you believe that the fourth commandment was somehow transferred to the Lord's Day, then you're going to have to show me where Jesus and the apostles spell that out. And I hope that you would agree that for such a major change, and think about it, we're not just changing the day from Saturday to Sunday, but you're changing the whole purpose of it from rest, from work, to, to worship, which I wonder if you'll agree with me that worshiping with your brothers and sisters on the Lord's Day is is hardly restful. And and rightly so. We're serving, we're loving. Liturgy, that word itself means it's, it's work. Anyway, there's lots we could talk about here, but you're talking about a major change to this Sabbath command, not just in terms of day, but in terms of purpose. And for such a major change, you would expect to see some explicit teaching on the subject. But what you find actually is the opposite. You find the Apostle Paul strongly warning Christians, Christians who are tempted to to get back into some of this Jewish law stuff, the apostles warn them strictly to not have anyone judge them about Sabbaths. Paul can speak to, uh, he can speak of people who believe one day to be sacred. So people, you know, people that are real uh, sticklers for the Sabbath. He, He can speak of people who believe that one day to be sacred. And the context would have Paul describing them as weaker brothers. And he could also describe people who believe that all days are the same. Not not same, not same in terms of, geez, all of them are mundane, but same in that all of them are sacred because we are in Christ and our sins are forgiven. And so every day is a day to enjoy the rest that Christ has won by his life and his death and his resurrection. And every day is a day to fight sin and to strive to enter the rest that still remains an eternal rest in the new heavens and the new earth where we will Sabbath with our Savior and be totally satisfied in him forever. I can't wait for that day.
in you. 